should just to take a moment and pray for the families that have lost these elementary children and the, is it two teachers that have died and the families of the two teachers as well I think it's important that we that we lift them up tonight um, this is a national tragedy and uh, I don't know the answer um, I, I think the answer is a lot deeper than what politicians make it out to be they, they hit the surface, they don't go deeper. Um, we can talk about gun control, we can talk about you know, setting up uh, stricter background checks and all of that, but the reality is um, the reason this nation has so many people that are out of their minds is because we have neglected God. We've neglected God in the homes, we've neglected God in churches, in schools, and and now we're, we've made our bed, and now we're sleeping in it. And it's just too easy to blame it on something over here that's surface level instead of really looking at ourselves as a nation and saying, we have drifted from God. And what we're seeing is the byproduct of 75% of all children in inner cities do not have a father image in the home. A Black Lives Movement that in their purpose, in their mission statement, they do not make any mention of supporting a father role in the home. They don't mention anything about the man because most, in most homes, men don't exist there. So they don't see that as the answer. So when you have a nation that's so whacked out, we're, we're so, we're in this downgrade that we're not able as a people, as a, as a nation to really address the deeper issues. Uh, darkness likes darkness, doesn't like light. And if you try to shed light, uh, if I had an opportunity to have some coffee with Whoopi Goldberg um, and tried to share some light with her, I, I think she would be pretty ticked off mad. Uh, but that's the truth. That's the situation we're in. So these families are suffering and these, uh, these the teachers, the, the children that died, this all happens because of a nation that continually ignores God and ignores biblical principle, Judeo-Christian principle. So let's just pray, and let's pray for our nation. Let's pray for our families, our, for our own protection. Father, we come before you this evening as we start, and Lord, uh, it's just not political. It, this problem is, is spiritual. And... Uh, First and foremost, our hearts just were broken over the, the pain, over the loss that these families have just experienced. We're not talking about people that have lived long lives and they suddenly die. We're talking about children who are just getting started in life. And, and, but this is what sin that was introduced by Adam and Eve this is what sin does. It tastes good in the mouth. It sours in the stomach. It, it has a way of taking you down a road that looks good, but the reality is you're only pleasing your flesh, and ultimately it's going to destroy you. Not just physically, it destroys spiritually as well. And so, God, our hearts hurt for the families. We hurt for the, the, the sense of loss. 
We don't understand if we sat with even just one of those families and they shared the stories of their child. And it would be so painful for them to even speak about it at this point. It's so fresh. But for us, it would just open our eyes to the sense of, of suffering that these families are enduring. And we don't have the answers. But you do, Lord. And the scripture tells us that you are near to the brokenhearted. You're near, you come near to the brokenhearted. I pray, Lord, that these families, these individuals, maybe it's a single mom and that was her only child, that God, you would come near to these individuals and that doors would open of opportunity to be loved by God. You would send uh, godly caregivers people who are, who are just encouragers, people who will just be present with them in their time of aloneness and just minister to them, Lord. We, we, there, there's nothing that can happen now for these lives that were lost, but Lord, the families are still here. Help them, Lord. Bring them to ultimate healing, spiritually first and foremost and emotionally, mentally. Help them, Lord. We, we really don't know what else to say. Um, God, we pray for the family of the shooter, uh, his, his grandfather hurting deeply. The grandmother, she was shot. She was taken. Her life was taken. So every, there's just nothing but pain and devastation because of sin. And so this is a reminder to us as a church to remember that Church is not about just going into an ivory tower and having friends that we know really well and just sitting around and, you know, just singing kumbaya. But Lord, it's, it's also, it is that, but it's also going back out into the world. And it's, it's connecting with people who don't know Jesus, loving them where they are. I, I pray for Mary to, tonight. A woman that we met today, a neighbor uh, who just moved in, we, we lift her up tonight. We pray that you would just minister to her and to her children. She, she has children. And, and be with her tonight in Jesus' name, Lord. Father, also the teaching tonight, may it be, may it be effective, may it be uh, insightful, may it be applicable, practical, something that we need to hear as the Holy Spirit speaks to each of us subjectively. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I really don't even know how to express prayer for people that are going through what these people are going through. I, I really don't. In my private prayers today, I, just, I found myself just in silence and then just moaning as I would think about a family with a little second grader, third grader, fourth grader, and it just the ache came over my heart. And what do you do? I just pray that there's Christians that will come to them and just sit with them. You don't have to say anything. Just be a presence with them as they go through this terrible time. And uh, some of you have lost children. No parent ever wants to outlive their child. And so you know very well what it's like uh, in ways that the rest of us don't.
but uh, heart's heavy. All right. And, and I can get angry real quick and easy. I don't know about you, but when I listen to radio or TV, I can get angry quick when I hear what people are doing with this and making it to be something else. But anyway, First uh, Kings chapter 9, we're going to pick up at verse 1. And of course, we know that Solomon has now completed both his palace and the temple. So it says, as soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. Now let's try to put a timeline on God's second response to Solomon when he shows up here. If you remember the first time God showed up, it was at the dedication service. Uh, It was actually before that, way back in Gibeon, and the Lord came to, to Solomon. Now... It's, it's the second time he, he is, uh, he's prayed, and it's actually not right after the dedication. I want, to, I want you to see this. Turn in your Bible, go back to chapter 6, 1 Kings chapter 6. We'll pick up at verse, just read one verse, verse 1. I want to try to put a timeline together on this, because there's a point I want to make out of it. And the point, I'll just tell you right out of the gate, the point is that God isn't working in our time. He works in His time. That's a tough one for some of us to hear, but that's the truth. He is working, but according to His, his will and, and, and by His timeline. So it says in verse 1 of chapter 6, in the 408th year of the people of Israel, the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So according to that passage, Solomon began building the temple somewhere around April to May of 966 B.C. Now because it's B.C., we're we're moving forward by going down in number, right? Okay, so, so it was sometime, you know, in that second month, uh, and we said prior, we talked about this before, that the temple uh, dedication in Solomon's prayer to the Lord occurred 11 months after the completion of the temple. Didn't, so he didn't complete the temple and right away have a dedication. They waited 11 months, and that happened sometime around 958 B.C. And the Lord did not appear to Solomon this second time until Solomon had completed building his own palace in 946 B.C. So one of the structures took seven years to build. The other structure took uh, 13 years to build. That's a total of 20 years. And then there were four years before he started building. So he's been the king now for 24 years. Uh, So the Lord's response to the prayer of supplication that Solomon prayed in chapter 8 did not come right away. God waited, get this, about 12 years. Remember, which, which building did he build first? the temple, and then he built his palace, okay? Or, no, I got it backwards, didn't I? No, was it the house? House was later, okay. So 12 years since the dedication prayer of intercession for Israel, 12 years. And, and, And here God finally answers. 
So God doesn't always answer prayers when we ask. And it's important to remember, church. Again, God is bringing all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His... Whose purpose? So His timeline for answering prayer could be different than our timeline because it's not really our purpose that He's trying to fulfill. He's fulfilling His purpose. This is all... We, this is all about understanding the sovereignty of God, which, by the way, I don't know anybody who can fully grasp that. I certainly cannot. The sovereignty of God. Nothing, including the shootings of these 20, 21 uh, children and, and, and teachers, nothing happens with God not knowing about it. He has foreknowledge. Let me just help you here. God knew about it before the foundation of the world because He has foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. He, he, he knows the future before the future happens. He, he knew you by name. He spoke of Jeremiah and said, Jeremiah, I, I knew you when you were in your mother's womb. Nancy Pelosi made a statement on NBC that, of course, uh, the church has always been against capital punishment, which she's wrong on that. But she also stated that the Bible, and she was thinking of a passage in Matthew, that uh, justifies um, you know, her positions. And, of course, she was asked by the archbishop not to take communion because she believed in abortion and the, all, the, all these arguments and things. But the reality is what Nancy Pelosi is not considering is God knew Nancy Pelosi before she was even in the womb. He knew her by name. He chose her. I mean, God chooses to live, to be able to live. Nobody lives on this earth unless God has chosen you to live on the earth. And he knew her. But see, we, we start taking matters on our own. We take personal responsibility. I'll do it my way. I don't need God. And it's because people don't know God. They don't know the sovereignty of God. They don't know the foreknowledge of God. They don't know how much God knows them. It, you, you know, you set out when you're young, when you finally can get out of the house. Remember, remember those days when you finally left your house and you thought, now I get to do it the way I want. And it's not long after that you realize, I kind of missed the house. Mom and dad weren't as dumb as I thought they were, you know? And uh, we kind of come to realize, well, the same is true with God. We come to realize as we grow in the Lord or even when we come to a point of decision that God knows everything I don't. He knows better how to live my life than I do. So I think I'll just surrender my life to Him and let Him live life through me. See, that's what it means to be a Christian. Christ is in me. Right? Amen? And, and, and so, so here, Solomon's praying 12 years. And this is a guy who God told him, 
I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give you discernment. I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you uh, fame. But it was 12 years after he requested this prayer for, the, for, for Israel. So the Lord said to him in verse 3, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there, uh, there forever. That's interesting. I have consecrated this house that you, may, that you have built by putting my name there for, forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Now, it's, it's, it's also possible to pray a grand prayer like Solomon did and God not even hear the prayer. Here, God says, I heard your prayer. God does not hear every prayer. The Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of God is against those who do evil. He's not interested in hearing evil prayers. Or prayers crying out to Him when He knows that they're not sincere. God is responding to prayer that lines up with His will. That's really what God's interested in. And, and so here, this was God's will to have His name be forever. Well, guess where that name is today? Because there is no temple in Jerusalem. Okay, that temple was destroyed, completely leveled. It's in you. It's in me. Our, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. He now dwells, just like He dwelt with the temple, He dwells with us. And uh, so while God didn't respond immediately to Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple, he, here's what He did do to make Solomon aware that, he, that he, he was in favor of the temple being dedicated. What did He do? Remember when it said that God showed up and fire came from heaven and consumed the sacrifice? And the priest could not even stand up to minister because the cloud came in. God's presence came in. So while God didn't answer the prayer right away, God did let them know, I'm, I'm in favor of what you've done. This is what I wanted you to do. You've been faithful. You've done it. Now, turn in 2 Chronicles, if you would, to chapter 7. And we're just going to pick it up at verse 1, just three verses, 1 through 3. 2 Chronicles 7. This is really a beautiful picture. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw that the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple... They bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. So, which is the only response when God shows up like that, you fall down. Okay? You don't stand there like, Oh, this is pretty cool. <laughs> you know, God shows up, fire comes and consumes this huge sacrifice, you, you go down as the cloud comes in, the glory of God coming in. And uh, so, so God already has blessed the building of the temple. But Solomon made specific requests of the Lord. He wanted, he wanted God to have mercy even after he brought curses upon the people for their sinfulness. And God didn't answer that prayer for 12 years. 
I, I wonder, what do you think was going on? Let's just talk about it for a second. What was going on in Solomon and in the people? Remember, when he prayed that prayer, the people heard it. So what, what are they thinking? He's, he's put out all these scenarios. You know, if pestilence comes, a curse that you bring because of the simple, will you bring them back? You know, if, and he went through all these scenarios of these different famines and pestilence and whatever. Now, 12 years, what do you think was going on in the minds of the people? I mean, is it possible that maybe they thought, I don't think God's going to, I don't think he's going to honor that prayer. Yeah, he showed up for the temple because he was pleased that we built it. But everything Solomon asked for, it's been 12 years. None of, God's never given us a response. He asked specific questions of God. Specific. So maybe God doesn't really like what he was asking. Maybe God chose not to answer. I mean, what do you think? Give me a thought. What was Solomon thinking for 12 years? Yes. Yeah. Unbelief, doubt, like the golden calf experience. Yeah, Moses and, and you know, he goes up on the mountain and Aaron and uh, we know what happens. Uh, when they come back, they've already chosen a different, they've made a god out of a calf. Um, I don't think any of us can give a, a, a right answer because we don't know, but I do believe it made them think. Sometimes when God makes us wait before He answers our prayers, doesn't it kind of work on you? Maybe God's using that time to do a deeper work in you. Maybe you start asking after year three, why didn't God give me a response? I don't really understand. Maybe he's wanting me to draw nearer to him. Maybe, maybe there's some sin in my life and that's hindering my ability to really uh, know that God is with me on this. I, I think that had to be in, some of that had to be there. Did you have... Oh, okay. Somebody raise a hand. Oh, okay, Pat. I'm sorry. Amen. That's good. Let me say it again because of the microphone. She, you can't hear it online, but uh, some. What's the song? Uh, God. God's. Uh, there's a song. God's. Sometimes God's greatest gift it, are unanswered. Un unanswered prayers. Amen. It certainly would keep us on our knees, I would think. It's possible. And for others, like you guys said, for others, it causes them to drift. Well, he doesn't care. We make excuses and we go off on our own. But uh, this is interesting to me. Um, so God said, when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord of the temple, they bowed down their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, 
for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So in that moment, man, um, they are in it to win it. Uh, so, you know, Solomon's in this place where I've, I've consecrated this house, uh, or I've, I've built this house for the Lord, and now the Lord's going to consecrate it for us, and God did in fact consecrate it, okay? The building was Solomon's work, done in the power and the inspiration of the Lord, that's true. Uh, the consecration of the temple, though, was God's work. Man cannot consecrate. Man cannot um, uh, set apart to make holy. That's the work of the Lord. And I think sometimes we build a structure like a church building and we, we start worshiping the building. We think it's holy just because we built it for the Lord. No, what makes that building consecrated is when it's used solely for God's purposes. Uh, did you ever find yourself saying to a child running through the, hey, stop running, this is the Lord's house. Um, well, I got to share with you, the Lord's house is inside of us, okay? The building is not, uh, God's not dwelling like He would in our hearts. He's not dwelling in churches today in the same way that He, that he, dwelt in the temple or the tabernacle. It's different now. Uh, but, but we do dedicate that building to the Lord. We've set it aside for the Lord's use, so we don't allow groups from the outside to come and have a rock concert. <laughs> We're going to use it for the glory of God. We're not going to use it for the glory of man. Okay? That, but, but still, that doesn't mean we now worship the building. And you got to think about this. This temple was an, a beautiful structure. I mean, beautiful. The, the limestone rocks, these huge, huge rocks stacked on top, white. At the top, they put gold all the way around the outside. It glistened in the noonday sun. This was a beautiful structure. It's possible that some of why God actually took Israel down and disciplined them was because they worshipped the building. It's possible. You know why? Because God even says in our text tonight, the one thing He repeats over and over, I will not fulfill the conditions I've given you if you turn to other gods, including buildings, including Symbols, a cross. If you worship those things, if you have a cross in your home, let's say you have it sitting on a table, a, a, a corner cabinet or something, and somebody bumps and it falls, what, what does that do inside of you? Do you go, <laughs> Why? It's a piece of wood. God's Spirit is not in the cross. Never are we to focus on the object. The same is true for a picture of Jesus. The same is true for the little, you know, on some, I'm not going to say what religion, but the parishioners will have a little uh, plastic statue of Jesus. 
on the dashboard of their car. I don't care if it rains or freezes, as long as I got that plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. No, we're not going any further with that one. But honestly, they really believe it's protecting them. See, that's, that's idol worship. That is idol worship. And we, we must not allow anything to replace God. Nothing, including buildings. One day we're going to, the Lord willing, we're going to have our own place. That'll be a glorious day of celebration that we have a place that we can dedicate for the purposes of God and helping people through this county and ministering and teaching and all that's going to happen. That's a wonderful thing. Don't worship that building. Don't freak out when little children in a preschool that we allow to use it through the week and there's a hole in the wall from the preschool it's called spackle. It's called paint. We'll take care of it. We're not going to worship it, but it is going to be used for the glory of God. Does that make sense? Oh, we're going to have to watch this close because that's what happens to churches. They turn places of worship into museums, you know, and some are called mausoleums. Um, they're, they're dead. But go to, go to England. And look at the, cathedral, the great cathedrals, and uh, my goodness, no spirit of the Lord present. Why? Because they've, they've turned God into idols. They've got the statues of the saints. They've got the relics. I went to a place where they had the relic. They had some saint whoever, and they had his heart encased. And you could look at it. Ridiculous a human being, a sinner after the sin of Adam, and they're worshiping him. We, we, we don't want to, you know, I don't see us doing that, but we could have our own ways of falling into the trap of idol worship. We need to be careful. Important to remember, man builds, God hallows. Man builds, God hallows. Man cannot hallow because we're not holy. You got to be holy to hallow. Jesus said of the Father, "Hallowed be thy name." Only he hallows. So, and and because he hallows, he's first and foremost he's hallowing in us. You have been set apart for the Lord's purposes. You your body is now dedicated to the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. Now, when I say that, the first thing you think of, "Oh my gosh, man, I've got all kinds of, you know, Spider webs and cracks and crevices filled with dirt in my in the Lord's house. Um, we all do. You're not alone there. Don't let the enemy take and destroy this beautiful picture of God, who now has control of you. Paul said, "No longer do I live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God." So, uh, theologian F. B. Meyer he said, "Man performs the outward and mechanical." God the inward and spiritual. We must be careful to do our part with reverence and godly fear, remembering that God must work in realms we cannot touch and to issues we cannot reach before our poor exertions can avail. 
Verse 4, and as for you, I, uh, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keep my statues and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now, this is the answer to Solomon's prayer for the Lord to show mercy upon Israel when she was caught in sin. Notice his answer to Solomon's prayer has a great condition to it. If Solomon, first and foremost, walks before the Lord in obedience and faithfulness, he could expect blessing on his reign and on the reign of his descendants. The same is true for the people, for Israel. If they will walk before the Lord, then they can experience the blessings of God that he gave in the response, uh, and he would endure forever. And that's a beautiful thing. This doesn't mean that God expected Solomon to walk in perfection. It doesn't mean that. God said, walk in the same, I want you to walk the way your father walked. Did David walk in perfection? The guy murdered someone. He was a, he was a uh, man, adulterer, uh, fornicator. He was a mess. So why would God say that? If, if you'll walk in obedience before me like your father David. What's he referring to? Well, as you read further, you're going to see it. But the primary thing that God is speaking of in that is that you will always worship me and no other. Worship me. Don't worship anyone else. Verse 6. If you turn aside from following me, there it is, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go on, here it is, and serve other gods and worship them. See, this is the one thing David, in all of his sinfulness, never did. He never turned from God. That's why the Scripture says that, uh, that he had a heart after God. He, he never struggled with idol worship. And he's telling Solomon these things. Solomon, you need to remain true to me like your father did. Well, God knows the future. And this is interesting, too. When you're reading a passage of Scripture and you come to a truth principle, and all of a sudden something in that principle just kind of grabs you, and you go, oh, well, that, I would never do that. You know, I, that's not, okay. Usually that's the reason why that grabbed you is because the Holy Spirit is enlightening you to something that you could easily fall into. The very thing that you read and it kind of grabs you a little bit and you go, yeah, I could see that guy doing it. I could see her doing it. I would, Lord, I would never do that. Um, what's the passage in Corinthians that uh, you too can stumble? If, if you think that you're beyond stumbling, you are setting yourself up to stumble. Right? And so here, God keeps reminding Solomon about following God, not turning to false idols. Why? And Solomon's probably going, I don't know why you're making a big deal out of that one. That's not going to be a problem for me. And God's like, there's a reason why I'm telling you this. And it was a problem. He goes further, verse 7, Then I will cut off Israel from the land 
that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my, my name, I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a, and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they, they, they abandoned the Lord God, their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. I mean, God is saying all of this to Solomon. <clears throat> Why? Because it's going to be a problem. This is going to be a problem. And quite honestly, it's a problem for us today. We, we, we begin to drift away from God and we don't even know it. And we make other things gods to us. The things that we often spend the most time doing can easily become a god. Maybe that's why we spend so much time doing it. Because it has become a god in our life. What is that? What do you spend most of your time doing? Now, if you're a parent spending time with children, you can't really get away from that. That's, that's, that's par for the course. If you're a grandparent, you want time. But even as a parent or a grandparent, you can idolize your children, your grandchildren, and not even realize they've become an idol to you. That you live your life to assist them, to please them, to do everything for them. That's not the way God's designed parenting. There comes a point in parenting where God says it's time to let them go. And if you've made them an idol, it will really be hard to let them go. I mean, it's hard anyway, even if you don't make them an idol, right? I know that. I've raised four kids. It's hard. Well, maybe not all that hard sometimes. Um, come to think of it, a couple of them, I was like, praise God, hallelujah. Let me do a little dance. <laughs> Click the toes. Uh, but no, you... You, you do miss them. I, I, I know that when I took Mark up to Liberty, you know, I've got three daughters and a son, and I love each one of them uniquely. And uh, I, I say this, if, if a father's never had a daughter, oh, you're missing out. It's, there's nothing like it. At the same time, I also know what it is to have a son. And so when I drove him up to Liberty to drop him off for, for college, I remember uh, we talked all the way up. You had a wonderful time sharing together and did a couple things on the way. And then when I dropped him off and I got back in that forerunner and I started heading down the road, I, I wept for a solid hour. I finally pulled over, uh, I don't even know what town and where it was, and there was a Starbucks. And I went in and sat down and I got my laptop out and I wrote, uh, I needed to just write uh, about the feelings I was having in that moment. And uh, it was tough. It was tough. But I'll tell you this. Um, I never want to worship my children and be so much engaged in their lives that it consumes my time and all my energy now that they are on their own. Because that means I'm, I'm giving to them what belongs to God. When your kids leave the house, you've got more time now to serve the Lord. But a lot of parents never seem to get there because they're still so engaged. Everything's about the children. 
So, so I'm just telling you, it's easy for us. We can look at Solomon and go, well, you know, God needed to speak to him about false idols and stuff. Uh, we're not far, far off. It's interesting. Verse 9, then they will say, but because they abandoned the Lord God, their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold uh, on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Um, back in verses 1 through 5, we see the positive promise. But here, it's followed by a negative promise. If Solomon or his descendants turn from following the Lord, God promises to correct a disobedient Israel. Oh, Father, forgive us as a people that this is where we have failed as a nation. We have stopped correcting disobedient children. If there's been a, an area we've let down as a nation, we've let down disobe uh, uh, disciplining disobedient children. That's why parents today don't discipline kids, because they were never properly disciplined. They were either beaten and abused that caused them now to not do any discipline with their kids, or they just never had a parent that cared enough to discipline them. So they never learned what it is to be a parent. And, and that's one of the restraints that God has put on the earth, parenting, to help peep, guide children away from evil. And boy, we're struggling with that now. So uh, at verse 10, at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram king of uh, Tyre, or Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold as much as he desired. King Solomon gave to Hiram uh, 20 cities in the land of Galilee. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore he said, What kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul, C-A-B-U-L or K-A-B-U-L, to this day. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. 120 talents of gold. So Solomon sold these 20 city cities in Galilee to Hiram in exchange for about four and a half tons of gold. Four and a half tons of gold. Okay? Uh, these cities probably lay uh, close to Syria along the coast. So, because uh, Galilee is the northern part of the Holy Land as we would know it today. All right? And uh, Solomon gave them to him, but this is a terrible deal. Let me tell you why it's terrible. Not just because Solomon was too shrewd in the business deal and kind of ripped off Hiram, gave him some lousy cities for all the four and a half tons of gold, but because God, by divine intervention, gave that area, that land to Israel. What is Solomon doing giving up land, promised land, to a foreign king? Now, it doesn't say anything about that. But I just want to say, these, this is how you start on a slippery slope. It doesn't start with a major wrong. It starts with just loosening the reins a little bit and taking and making decisions that are not sound in judgment. And that's what Solomon's doing here, okay? Uh, Kabul, by the way, he, so Hiram names the cities Kabul. You know what it means? It literally means good for nothing. <laughs> it's kind of funny. 
Even though he was displeased with the trade, he went forward with it in good humor and sent Solomon the four hundred four and a half tons of gold. Verse 15, and this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon... So what we're learning about now, just the continual things that Solomon did, um, and it kind of shows of his power, it shows of his wealth, it shows of his prestige, uh, shows of his some of the uh, ways that he he conducted his kingship in the golden years. And so here's the account of the forced labor that Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house and the millow, the millow and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. Uh, that would be Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as dowry to his daughter, uh, Solomon's wife. So Solomon, <coughs> excuse me, rebuilt Gezer and lower Betharon and Baloth and Tamar uh, in the wilderness, in the land of Judah. And all the store cities that Solomon had, and the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of, the, of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel... Their descendants, who were left after them in the land, in, in the promised land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction. And the reason they didn't destroy, the reason they didn't drive them out was because they lost faith and they lost the ability to be faithful to God. They started taking these, these people, they took their daughters for marriage, they took their sons for marriage, and they watered down. And that's why today, in that region... Um, well, there's not hardly any left now, but the Samaritan, the, the um, yeah, the Samaritans. Uh, that's that's what they in Samaria. That's the problem. They're half Jew and half something else. They're half breeds, and so these these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers. They were the officials, commanders, captains, chariots, commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work. So he justified having forced labor among these different people groups that God told him to drive out by making the Israelites lord over them. Okay. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work. 550 who had charge of the people who carried off the on the work. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. And then he built the mill. The millow. Uh, let's let's talk about these things. So Solomon raised this massive forced labor to complete these huge building projects that he took on. He no king like him ever. I mean, this guy was building things that nobody else could build. And archaeology, by the way, today is the witness of everything. All these things that Solomon did and what he built. Uh, incredible building projects. The Hebrew term millow is probably a name for a prominent fortress near the temple and the palace. It sat between the temple mount, where the temple was, up on a mountain, between that and the city of Jerusalem. It was a valley area, okay? And so they built this fortress in that location. Um, some believe it describes architectural terracing and buttressing along the northern, northeastern slope of the east hill of Jerusalem, the city of David. So... So these beautiful things he built with the forced labor of other people groups. 
Uh, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer were three prominent fortified cities in the days of Solomon. And now archaeologists have discovered that the gate complexes on these three cities were exactly identical, and the plan was laid out exactly the same, which, and that they were built during the era of Solomon. So he took those three cities and he built the same gate system for all three cities. There again, it just reinforces that Solomon did all these things that the Bible said. I love that. Uh, Hazor was a strategic location in the north, three miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It became Israel's chief bulwark against northern invaders until it was destroyed in the 8th century. Megiddo was the fortress that controlled the major passes from the plains of Sharon on the coast into the valley of Jezreel through the Carmel Range. So the, in, the, in the open range area where the highways were, they built Megiddo, this fortress that would keep people from coming in. Okay, And then down south, Gezer on the road from Joppa to Jerusalem had been a powerful Canaanite city. <laughs> Though it was included in the tribal territory of Ephraim, it was not occupied by the Israelites until Solomon came into power. So it was actually given to Solomon as a wedding gift uh, from Pharaoh because, because Solomon married his daughter. A lot of the marriages that Solomon took were, were really diplomatic moves. Uh, he had peace with all kings, all nations. And so he married a lot of, a lot of women of kings. Um, when it talks about all the people who were left uh, of the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, who Solomon used in his forced labor, this is another apparent compromise that Solomon made. He should have drove them out. David should have dr uh, driven those out. They did not. Going all the way back to Joshua coming in and the people after, they never drove them all out. They kept taking them as servants and they would work them in the fields and then as they would have all the harvest come in, then other nations would come and steal the harvest. God sent other nations to steal the harvest. Why? Because I never told you to make other nations, people, your slaves. And they would use the excuse, but yeah, but we're taxing them. So there, there's compromise, right? We do the same thing with God. We compromise. So instead of just doing it God's way, I'm going to find a way in the middle, a little bit of God and a little bit of what I want make a compromise. Um, the Lord has clearly shown you in Scripture, you need to be the head and not the tail in your finances. And so right now, you're, in, you're the tail. You're being driven by your, by your interest rates, and you're living to make payments. And, and now a new car comes out. Oh my goodness, I've got to have one of those. And the Lord's already told you, no, you need to pay off debts. You need to get out of debt. You need to keep driving that old rusty thing that you've had for the last 15 years until you pay off all your debts and then save money and go pay cash for that car. And you compromise. You compromise. God said, no, I want you to pay now and play later. And you said, I think I'll play now and I'll pay later. But when you pay later, you always pay more. Compromise. This is what Israel did. This is what we can get caught up in. Maybe it's not finance. Maybe that's not a problem for you. What is the area for you? 
You came to a point where you said, I'll never watch any R-rated movie again. And you stopped. And then all of a sudden, you started noticing the PG-13 movies were like the old R-rated movies. But you never gave up the PG-13s or checked the movies out before they played. Compromise. Let me tell you about a great little book you ought to pick up. It's that thick, about that big. It's called uh, Worldliness. It's written by C.J. Mahaney. I think it's called Worldliness. Look that up, Scott, for me. I've got a copy of it. I've read it several times. When I first read it the first time, oh my goodness, I was convicted to my core. Didn't realize the level of compromise that I had fallen into. It's a wonderful little tool, just loaded with Scripture. So we really do need to be careful in these areas that we not be caught up in compromise like Solomon. Uh, let's go down to verse 25. Three times a year Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. So he finished the house. Uh, that's interesting, three times a year. So, you know, there used to be many feasts, many uh, gatherings for the Jews throughout the year. And by the time we get to Solomon, Solomon's reduced it down to three. Well, guess how many major feasts there are for the Jews today? Three. What's the first one? Passover. Okay, the Passover meal. What's the second one? How many days after Passover does Pentecost come? Anybody remember? 50 days. 50 days after. And so then you have the Feast of Pentecost. And, and then what's the one in the fall? You have the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Booths where Israel builds the little huts and they all come to Jerusalem, they build their little huts and they live under the stars at night and tell their children looking up through the cracks in the roof, this is how our forefathers lived in the wilderness for 40 years and God provided and their shoes never wore out, their clothing never wore out. God was faithful. It's a reminder to them. Those are the three feasts that Israel to this day still still celebrate. These are the three that, that he's referring to here. Most, most uh, theologians believe that's the case. So also, look at this. Uh, King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir, we don't know where Ophir is, I'd love to know, and, bro and brought from there gold, 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. So once the temple had been built, Solomon practiced his practice of sacrificing to God at the various high places ceased, and he brought everything to the temple, okay? So now he's got three great annual feasts, Passover, Pentecost, Booths, uh, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of uh, uh, Tabernacle at the temple in Jerusalem. Three times a year, Solomon offered burnt offering. It may be that he took upon himself the exclusive duties of a priest when it says that, but, but most scholars don't believe that's the case. They believe it's simply referencing that he was the one who established when the people would gather for the priest to make the sacrifice. So he initiated, but he didn't actually try to serve as a priest. Uh, and probably that's true because never does God get on him about that. 
never corrects him for being for making making sacrifices that he should not be making. So that's probably not the case. Okay. Uh, so that's really the end of chapter nine, and uh, I think we'll stop right here. It's a clean break. We'll enter chapter ten. Next chapter. Oh man, it's all we're, now. We're going to see more about Solomon's relationship to other nations, and now you get the queen of she, you know Sheba comes. And all these things that go on, and the wisdom, the the incredible insight of King Solomon is known all over the world. Man, he is the dude. In fact, it says of the queen when she saw everything, she said, "They, they, they. What they told me about you before I came, I, I, I couldn't believe it. But now that I'm here, I realize they only told me half of everything." And, and it says in the text that literally, if you break it down, it says she was breathtaking by what she experienced. She put riddles before the king, tough riddles. He answered every one of them. Just a wise guy. Nobody's ever been wise like Solomon. Maybe, maybe President Biden. Okay, I'm just... That's that terrible. There's never been a United States president that comes close to Solomon. No king anywhere. We are studying the wisest king that ever lived on the face of the earth. Isn't that amazing? And all because of God. God gives you and I gifts, abilities, and He fully intends that we use them for His glory, that we make our lives a sacrifice to Him. He's not asking you to make an animal sacrifice. Make your life a sacrifice that's pleasing to Him. It's a sweet fragrance in His nostril when you serve Him. Father, tonight we do thank You that You are a God like no other. <clears throat> All other gods are false. All other gods are made by the hands of men. They come from the mind of a man. You're the only God, and You're the one God who came down to earth where all other gods are trying to reach up to heaven. We are just so thankful, God, we're not, that doesn't make us arrogant, that doesn't make us want to boast to others what we have and they don't have. Lord, if anything, it just drives home how we were just as undeserving as every other human being. And for some reason, you chose us. You allowed your grace to save us. And we are so appreciative. And now, Lord, even tonight as we leave, may we be reminded fresh that you want us to be a witness for you through the remainder of this week, that we would come back together on Sunday and rejoice over the wonderful opportunities that God has given us to be His witnesses in this world. We give you praise and honor for that. In Jesus' name, amen.